Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That is what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. Be it joy and laughter, sorrow and tears, awe and insight, or deepest devotion, as we visit and listen, we are all part of a spiritual voyage called Song of the Soul. It's our amazing good luck to have John McCutcheon here with us today for Song of the Soul, live. Though you'll be listening later, we're recording this on July 4th, 2019 at Grinnell College, Grinnell, Iowa, before an audience of only five special guests, though John gave a super concert last night for many hundreds of us. If you don't know John McCutcheon, oh my goodness, have you been missing out. He's an amazing singer and songwriter, an amazing instrumentalist, including banjo, guitar, hammered dulcimer, keyboards, and on and on and on. No idea how many different instruments, actually. He's an activist, a uniter, an inspirer, and even a bit of a mystic, I believe. And his website is folkmusic.com. Talk about personification of a genre. John McCutcheon is one amazing musician, and he joins us in person today at Grinnell. John, how great to have you here for Song of the Soul. It's great to be here. It's been 10, 11 years since I interviewed you for Spirit in Action. And having you last night at the FGC gathering here in Grinnell, Iowa, is just such a real treat. I'm so amazed that you were able to squeeze in this time before a small audience here the morning after. You know, it doesn't matter to me whether there's however many there were last night, six, seven hundred maybe. Work happens in lots of different situations and, you know, step by step, inch by inch, (laughs) bird by bird, as Annie Lamott used to say, that's how you... That's how you communicate, and it's often more interesting and can be more focused when there's just a small group of people. We were talking just before you turned on the recorder here about humor. I happened to pick up a copy of Friends Journal yesterday, and the, the cover article from April was Humor in Religion. Mm-hmm. And I thought, thank God, quite literally, that this is being talked about, because I think we, when we're dealing with things of the soul— we can often get so earnest that we forget what a powerful thing humor can be. It can do everything from keep us from crying to let us know how joyful this life is to showing us that the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had any critique of the modern progressive movement, it's that it has very little humor and it's got no sense of culture. During the Civil Rights Movement, which is when I came of age, one of the things that was really clear to me is that there was a deep spiritual connective tissue that was going on. Think of the first of all, it was clergy-led. They used <laughs> biblical language, yeah. and the music was often repurposed hymns, which already had deep roots in people's lives and their souls, and they just understood the power of the pronoun. So a song like... I'll be all right someday, became I will overcome, and then eventually it was we will overcome, or we will not be moved. I heard an interesting story, which your listeners might appreciate. 
there was a woman named Septima Clark who was the education director at the Highlander Center in East Tennessee, which is where We Shall Overcome gestated. And she told me once, this is 40 years ago, she said, you know, John, I was the person who changed the will to shall. And I said, well, what prompted that? She said, because people open their mouths when they say shall. And it just felt better in the mouth. And I thought, well, I think about that in terms of songwriting all the time. How does a word, how does a phrase sound in your mouth? Because it's a, it's a tactile thing as well, tactile with your tongue. But let me give you an example. Both hands on her hips, fire in her eyes. My mom had just caught me in a great big lie. No, it didn't look good for a kid like me. And then I remembered something from TV. Alternative facts where the truth won't do. All the rules apply just not to you. And if you don't like the outcome or you just need to grind your axe, who can argue with alternative facts? Now, there's so much low-hanging fruit out there right now in the political world. <laughs> and, you know, I've been doing this long enough that I'll leave the low-hanging fruit to other people. I'm more interested in doing stuff that's more challenging. Often stuff like the song I sang last night, Y'all Means All which tells a story, or like the MS St. Louis, where it tells a story and, and hopefully engages the listener, and then they are forced to make a choice. You say this, 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 and then you take a little left turn. Same thing happened in Not In My Name. That last verse sneaks up on you. With something like alternative facts, that's something, I've got lots of friends. I come from a family that's sort of half left, half right, like mm-hmm. a lot of people do. Like a lot, yeah. And Thanksgiving can be really trying. <laughs> but with something like that, it's like people across the spectrum are going, oh, for crying out loud. Come on, can we agree on truth, at least, truth and lies? So to be able to humorously sort of poke at the central question here and find a place in which, again, we're talking about humor now, where everybody can laugh at the same thing, then you've got a conversation started. And most times these days, the thing that hurts my soul is the way in which we caricaturize one another, the way in which we feel like we have nothing in common and we judge the world based on who we voted for or what neighborhood we live in or where, when, or if we worship. And it is profoundly, just speaking from my own understanding of my own tradition, profoundly unchristian to dehumanize people in that way. Oh yeah, back in, in the early 2000s, I went whole hog on political satire until I realized that I was kind of contributing to the polarization that I so lamented and decided, okay, you've been doing this for long enough. You're smart enough, hopefully. Do the hard work of trying to find a way in which people can sit at the same table, disagree, but not view the other as and other. In fact, because we were recording this on the 4th of July, I was playing at a festival in North Carolina. It was an outdoor festival, and I was the last act. And as such, it's your responsibility to sort of tie the entire event up in a bow. 
you're the last person on stage that's going to be speaking to the audience, so you give the thanks that deserve and should be, if your mother raised you right, to all the people who made this event happen. It was an outdoor event in a park, and the stage was, was sort of wedged between these two gigantic pine trees. And I was looking around to make sure that I'd, yes, I remember to thank the sound people and the stage crew and the cleanup people. And I looked up and I saw this gigantic American flag, huge, hanging way up over the stage. And I said, and thank you for whoever did the impossible task of putting this flag up here. And afterwards, these two firemen came up to me. They said, we're from the local fire station. We're the ones. We brought the hook and ladder in here. And I saw them come in. They took it down. And it was all folded up, as you see, at the graveside. And they handed it to me and said, we want you to have this because no one has ever thanked us for doing this before. And I said, where did you get such a huge flag? And they said, well, it's an internment flag. It's the last thing the U.S. government gives to a veteran. So I took it home, and I bring it to every demonstration. And I was involved in a Labor Day parade. This is, gosh, 15, 20 years ago. And I brought my flag, as I always do. And because it was a Labor Day parade, I was asked to lead some songs during the march. And so I went up to a friend of mine and said, would you get at least one other people to hold this flag? And she looked at it and she said, I don't think I can do this because this stands for everything that I oppose. And I thought, wow, we have a real misunderstanding in the progressive wing of how we relate to our country and how we, I've been to other parts. I remember being in Nicaragua in the 1980s when we were funding a war down there, and people would say to me, we understand that there is a difference between the people who are currently in your government and Americans. And I thought, why don't we have that kind of prescient subtlety? And I was in the process of putting together a, um, an album of songs I was writing with some of my favorite songwriters, and this was something that... Um, after reading one of her essays that Barbara Kingsolver and I wrote together. I can see it so clear The very first time I'm at a game with my dad I was eight, maybe nine We all rose to our feet Before the ball game could start Took off our caps We put our hands to our hearts It was more than a banner It was more than a song I sang because I believed I sang because I belonged I sang for all those who dreamed For all those who dared Look to the heights flag was still there I've seen it passing on cars I've seen it passing for war I've seen it passing for patriotism We've all seen that before I've seen it used as a weapon some as wrong No one has the right I'll stand up and fight To say I belong Be 
Cause our flag is still there For all the saints and the sinners Yes, our flag is still there For all the losers and winners For those of us who still dream For those who still dare For all the lost and forgotten flag is still there From Lawrence to Lexington From Concord to Kent In Seattle and Selma We are born of descent And on this sacred ground Blessed by immigrant blood In this river of freedom We're all washed in the flood Because our flag is still there For all the saints and the sinners Yes, our flag is still there For all the losers and winners Those of us who still dream Those who still dare All the lost and forgotten flag is still there Still there though we might disagree If you are brave in the land of the free We have waited so long, we have traveled so far We are I forget what the words are We are spangled with stars So as we take off our caps As we all rise Put our hands to our hearts As we lift up our eyes It begins with a question Oh say can you see Stand and be strong Believe and belong Be brave and be free Cause our flag is still there For all the saints and the sinners Our flag is still there For all the losers and winners For those of us who still dream For those who still dare For everyone in this country The flag is still Very human rendition, <laughs> complete with forgotten words. It's sort of like the was it the Hopi or the Navajo blanket that is spun, and they always intentionally put a mistake. And folks, you know that that's John McCutcheon who's here today with us for Song of the Soul. I had him on Spirit in Action 10 plus years ago, and fortunately we're in the same place here at the French General Conference gathering at Grinnell College. One of my favorite songs. You know, I wrote that song in a response to the co-opting of what the notion of patriotism is. When I think of veterans, I don't only think of military veterans. I think of those people like John Lewis. I heard a story, again, down at the Highlander Center about a sheriff's raid when there were a group of young college students, black and white, at a workshop. The Highlander was one of the places that blacks and whites first met illegally to talk about 
a multiracial civil rights movement. This is back in the 1940s and 50s. The sheriff's department cut the power and came in, and they were had guns and clubs, and these college students were frightened out of their minds, and they started to sing, We Shall Overcome. And the authorities did not know how to deal with that. And they said, stop the singing. But they kept singing in total defiance. And that was the night. And Candy Carawan actually knows the name of this young woman. And I'm going to, I have to call her and get her name. But from under a desk, this absolutely frightened young woman started singing my favorite verse, made it up on the spot of we shall overcome, which is, we are not afraid. And of course they were afraid. But that's one of the things that songs, especially singing together, allows you to do is to say things about yourself that you can't speak and say things that might not even be true. And you're reaching out. And when you hear other people saying in their own, from the depths of their own frightened soul, we are not afraid. That gives you courage. Mm -hmm. One of the things that songs are able to do is move people. And we get this idea that what we need to do to move change forward is to pour ideas into people's heads. When in fact, we need to be speaking to their hearts as well. It was that thing I referenced about songs from the Civil Rights Movement that started off as people knowing these things as hymns. And there was something deep and rooted there that was not going to be moved. And it spoke a language of the heart and a language of the soul that you can't beat. And I did want to capture a little bit more of your soul. I'm going to go back to early days, John McCutcheon, because that's... I had hair? <laughs> when we all had hair. I remember I when I first met you, and yes, you had hair. As a matter of fact, I want to, first I want to say thank you. In 1986, the end of November of 1986, it was three weeks after my son was born. My wife and I had been at home with Chris, and we decided we had to go out because you were doing a concert in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And so we went there, but, you know, we have a little baby with us here. And most people were sitting up front. We sat in the far back. At a certain point, you unplugged from up there and started wandering around with your violin. Then they brought up the house lights, and you wandered back to us, and you played a lullaby for Chris. And so I'm, you've How been... How did he turn out? <laughs> <laughs> he's here, and he's wonderful. He's one of the leaders for the young adult friends oh, here. Okay. But what I'm wondering about, if you could share with the audience a little bit, about your background. You grew up in Wisconsin. I did. You also grew up in a Catholic family, as I did, only you had a small Catholic family. Mine was 12, right? Mine was only nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was the eldest. My mother was German. Her eldest brother was a priest. And my father's family were Scotch-Irish. And so if you grow up in that kind of environment, they cut the umbilical cord and then they put a little tiny Roman collar around your neck. So you're, I was groomed for the priesthood. And in fact, went to seminary for a couple of years. I went to high school and was thinking about, because no one in my family had gone to college, there was no expectation of that. So I was really on my own. And halfway through my senior year, I knew I wanted to go to college, but I had no idea where. So I just thought, well, Eau Claire State, it's the right distance. It's not far from where my grandparents live. So I can go down there and see my Uncle Stubby and my grandparents. And then I went to a, an orientation in my town, and I walked into the room, sponsored by Eau Claire State, and half my high school senior class was sitting in there. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been to high school. The next day, 
talk about maybe even divine intervention. I got an inquiry. I got a piece of material from St. John's University in Minnesota. So I said, well, I'll apply there. And I applied. Uh, it was the only place I applied. I got a scholarship and I got a work study. And I went there and it turned out to be one of the most synchronicitous and wonderful happenstances. It has one of the world's largest monasteries connected with it. So there is this sense of spirituality that pervades the campus. And it was a small school that gave me a huge long leash. I started to play the banjo while I was in my freshman year. And by the time I was in my sophomore year, I was totally off the deep end. And they had this independent study program. And I went to them and I said, I would like to spend a semester hitchhiking around the Southern Appalachians visiting banjo players. They said, okay. So I did. I mean, I wasn't about to be around many banjo players in North Central Minnesota. So I went off. Day after my 20th birthday, went out to the end of our farm drive and stuck out my thumb. And ironically, the very first, I stopped at the Grand Ole Opry because I wanted <laughs> to see it. Then my next destination was the Highlander Center. They were having their 40th anniversary celebration, and Guy Carawan had gotten me an invitation. At the end of that three month, I wrote back to my advisors and said, I'm just figuring out how to do this. I need another semester. And they said, okay. And at the end of that semester, they said, okay. And at the end of that semester, they said, Okay, but you actually have enough credits to graduate. And I said, really? And what kept me there was not only that I was learning how to learn, but that in the academic world, you walk into a little room and you study 18th century French literature or microbiology or Latin to the exclusion of everything else in the world for 45 minutes or an hour. And it is presented to you by a professional teacher who's got a pedagogy and a syllabus and all this kind of stuff, and is designed to help you learn as quickly and as best as you can. I was sitting in Roscoe Holcomb's living room, and he was playing the banjo. He wasn't a teacher. He was just a guy who played the banjo, but I wanted to learn what he did. So I had to completely rethink how to learn. And what I quickly understood is that I wasn't as much interested in learning how to put my finger in the right place on the string. I mean, a monkey can do that. But I couldn't divorce the banjo from its cultural context. It was a part of this whole scene. It wasn't this rarefied thing that a teacher would pluck out of its contest and teach me about. Because this banjo player might have been a farmer, or a coal miner, or a housewife, or a, uh, someone who delivered the mail. And they had a rich full life. And maybe they would say, we got to stop now because I've got to go play in church tonight. Or I've got to go play down on the picket line. Or we're having a pie supper to raise money so we can have a health clinic in our community. And I realized that music and the role of musicians was instrumental rather than ornamental to community life. And I'd never been around that. In our culture, artists are either the elite or the insignificant. And there's very little territory in between. You have privilege, yes. You have a microphone. Not many people get the microphone. But that microphone comes with responsibility. What do you say into that microphone that your community hears? And that's what I became fascinated with. Peeling back the layers of the onion of community life and how music fit into that. How it not only fit into it, but it came out of that. That was fascinating as a 20-year-old. It's fascinating as a 66-year-old. 
<laughs> I mean, I feel like I get out of bed every morning, and I'm, my job is not to get up on stage and sing, is to figure out how I'm using that microphone when I get up there. What story am I telling about this song, about this event, about our community? Which is what made last night so rich. There was so much understood and unspoken that was in that room. This was more than a concert last night. This was something we did in concert with one another. That never gets old for me. I started off on my own. I had a brief foray in a little string band when I lived in Southwest Virginia because there were calls for that kind of music. Band called Rye Straw that we actually just had a little reunion concert 40 years after we broke up. But most of the time, every now and again, I'll go out with, I'll have done a certain album and I'll say, or I'll, I'll do a holiday show. And well, you've done stuff with Tom Chapin oh, and yeah. Sycon and Then Pete others. Seeger and Holly Near and sure. lots of different people, yeah. My dream concert, by the way, is you, Carrie Newcomer, oh, yeah. Joan Baez, and Bonnie Raitt, all with this Quaker connection. Mm. I just thought that would be just one crazy concert. Oh, I've, to be done, part of. I've done a number of concerts with Carrie. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I proposed an event at, to Guilford College of Carrie and Bill Harley and me. And Bill, yeah, and the other Quaker that I should have mm. included in the mix. There's lots of wonderful musicians. In fact, I wrote a song recently... That references Quakerism. My wife's parents lived with us. And my, her mother still lives with us. But her father, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. He was a man who was born in central Cuba and died at age 94 or 93. Uh, one of the most remarkable men I've ever met. And we shared a lot of common loves. Uh, but after, after he died... Um, I had to, uh, one of the great things about songwriting is it saves me so much money in therapy. <laughs> so a lot of stuff is pretty cathartic, and this is one. I wrote the second verse. Uh, is, is about a, a great friend of mine, uh, Freda Epstein, who used to play with the group Trapezoid. And she was killed in a, a car accident on her way to a festival that I would have been at had I not been in Greece at the time. Out in the garden, the green's almost gone. Lettuce has long ago bolted. Spinach, cilantro, parsley, and chives. Everything else has revolted. I tear up the plants, take a hold to the soil. My attitude's all slash and burn. I'm tying tomatoes as I've been instructed. I hear his voice, I turn. Speaks up on me Unaware It feels so familiar He's suddenly there The sound of his laughter The smell of cologne It all lingers after I am not alone in a circle surrounded by song pulled to the center the fiddle and bow the harmony's lusty and strong I come to the line I've sung a hundred times into that star-spangled night someone is singing those low-throaty notes suddenly everything's right and she's 
sneaks up on me Unaware Feels so familiar She's suddenly there I feel her inside That old fiddle's moan Right there beside I am not alone Where do we come from? Where do we go? Where do we bide when we're done? All of this knowledge and what do we know After 65 trips round the sun? I sit in this small house Surrounded by friends Gathering on the first day One of the many Many are one in the silence Where I've learned to pray Babies are stirring, somebody snores, the old ones seem glowing with grace. Waiting expectant, patiently still as a presence comes over this place. Sneaks upon me, unaware, feels so familiar, and we're suddenly there, that small still voice. Calling me home, hallelujah, rejoice, I am not alone. Another very human rendering. Is that one on an album yet? It is. It's on an album called Ghost Light. Ghost Light? Yeah. And it's called? Unaware. I was unaware of that name. I just... <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> uh, well, and part of the issue is you have some 40 albums out there, which... It's because I was raised before Ritalin. <laughs> <laughs> really, you mentioned last night, you said you were hyperactive and bookish, which I don't generally put those two together. Oh, I mean, anyone who knows anything about ADHD knows that there is always at least one thing you can hyper-focus on. And when I was very young, it was books. That continues. But then out came the guitar. You know, it's sort of like a kid who discovers they have an aptitude for learning languages. There's a lot of similarity. You know, if you speak Spanish, I mean, my wife, who's a native Spanish speaker, her first language, she can understand Italian, even though she does not speak Italian. There is just enough similarity, and with most of the instruments I play, once you get the coordination of doing this with one hand and something completely unrelated with the other hand, well, gosh, you can do that with a banjo. You do that with a fiddle, and then you all of a sudden realize, oh, gosh, the fingering on the fiddle is the same as the mandolin, and I know how to do this from the guitar, so you put those together. Or, you know, someone who is a carpenter and has to know how to work with a hammer mm -hmm. and a screwdriver and a saw. I mean, no one says, I can't believe you can use all those tools. <laughs> it's the yeah. same thing. And I was young. I had no responsibilities. <laughs> I was off on this three-month independent study that I'm still on 47 years later. <laughs> and it was my job to learn. 
last night you performed on six. Actually, I should say seven because the last one you performed on was Tibetan Singing Bowl, right? That's got to be different because your fingers are doing two very different things. Okay. I don't know all the instruments that you own. You don't have. want to know. I mean, Is it a contentious issue in your marriage? Or have you got no. a separate building for that? I do. Okay. I do. Have, I have an old garage that for the first time in my life, everything is out. And I'm a big believer that if you put things in cases, it silences them and hides them. So I have stuff out on the walls and stands all over. So if I'm walking by the nickel harpa. Uh, You've got one now? Oh, yeah. Because Earl Holzman, you yeah. visited with him. And when I mentioned that Alyssa and I are part of the monthly song circle, it's very often at their house. And yes, so yes. He mentioned when he was talking to you about it. Yes. So I have, yeah, I've had a nickel harper for a number of years or a Cajun accordion or whatever. I mean, I am in love with not only sound, but what they came out of. One of the things I'm working on now is after I'm gone, after my family has whatever they want, I'm devising this program of giving away my instruments to mostly young people who need a good instrument. Because when you're young, you have to pay full fare. At my age, instrument builders come up to me and want to give me instruments so that people will see me playing their instruments on stage. And I can afford it now. It's the world turned upside down. By the way, the person who's talking over there is John McCutcheon. I've got to remind you, as you're listening out in Radio Land, he's here for Song of the Soul today. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website, where you find all of our links to our past programs and the list of the music included in our programs and the stations, the 40-some of them across the country where we're broadcast. Do go to the site, post comments, and click on the donate button to help make sure this work continues. His website, by the way, is folkmusic.com because he personifies folk music. Now, and nobody had it. And nobody had it. That's and, the real reason. And he has to occupy that position because Pete Seeger died several years ago. And one of your latest albums, I know, is recognizing the music of Pete Seeger. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, actually the end of a trilogy of albums because in 2012 it was Woody Guthrie's 100th birthday. Woody Guthrie was my first big influence just because I went to the library and it's the only thing that was listed under the subject guitar. And so I checked out this book and then renewed it and renewed it and renewed it and eventually didn't renew it or return it. Is this confession going on? This is confession, yes, yes. Though the library now has two copies from an anonymous donor. Um, So I was really influenced by Woody's approach to music. I mean, I never heard a recording of him for years and years. He just lived in these amazing songs that were so diverse and fantastic. And so on his 100th birthday, I put out an album of Woody Guthrie songs. And then I thought, well, this is great because I'm not focusing just on myself. And you do, you know, this is a weird job. I mean, yeah, a lot of the writing goes on in the background, but then you go out on stage and there's not many jobs in this world where you get approval every five minutes from strangers. So you constantly have to remind yourself why you do this because it's very seductive. I see it all the time among performers where they get sucked into this is why they're doing it. and, And that's bad for your soul. Fred Small specifically told me when I interviewed him that he stopped doing it because of that seduction. Uh Yeah, and so I thought, well, this is really fun, and so in 2015, it was the 100th anniversary of the death of the labor songwriter Joe Hill, 
Now, most people only know Joe Hill because Joan Baez sang about him at Woodstock, but he was a he was a real guy and the ultimate utilitarian songwriter. He wrote songs for this group of people, for this strike in this town, and they were completely short shelf life. They were not intended. He was a guy, never did a show, never made a recording, was never on the radio. He just did this because that was his job. And I thought, who better than I to do an album that has absolutely no commercial appeal? <laughs> Focusing on songs of a guy who's been dead for a hundred years that almost nobody has heard of, but if it wasn't for Joe Hill, there wouldn't have been a Woody Guthrie. And follow the logic beyond that. If there hadn't been a Woody Guthrie, there would never have been a Bob Dylan. And everyone that came after him, Steve Earle, Loudon Wainwright, Bruce Springsteen, John Mellencamp, who all followed that example. And so I put out this album, and as soon as I did that, I said, well, the next one is Pete, because it's the next line of birthdays. And it sort of touches all the bases for me, because you think, you think about, you know, the end game at my age. You know, what do I want to leave? And I've done plenty of albums of my own songs. So here's an opportunity to show how dynamic and important these people's music is today, that these are not museum pieces. There's a great, one of my favorite quotes in the world is from Gustav Mahler, who said, tradition is not the worship of ashes, it is the preservation of fire. Mm -hmm. And that's, tradition to me encompasses all these things, whether it's East Kentucky old-time banjo playing or writing a song about your father-in-law passing away and following that wild train of thought that ends up in a friend's meeting house. It's what musicians have always done. Would you like to share any music from any of those influences? I, this is your song of the soul, uh -huh. so the music selection is completely your own. I was wondering if you had something that you sang in the choir in high school or, you know, wherever it came from. I, I want to know more I about your choir. <laughs> I was in the band. What were you playing? I played trombone. I was really terrible. <laughs> I was so terrible that they made me the drum major. <laughs> also because the uniform fit. But my sole purpose in joining the band and deciding that I, I lied and said I could play the trombone, I figured I can, I can learn to play the trombone. How hard can it be? <laughs> was because it was opposite the saxophone section where Becky Rodehaver sat. Oh, Becky. Yeah, Becky. And I figured I could look at Becky Rodehaver for 45 minutes a day <laughs> if I played the trombone section. I was fourth trombone, and there wasn't even a third trombone. <laughs> That's how horrible <laughs> I was. But the, the band director figured it out, and he gave me a pass. Okay, here's a song Joe Hill and I wrote together. Joe Hill was executed by the... He was caught up in the anti-immigrant purges of the early 20th century. We did, <laughs> comes it, around. It comes around on a regular basis. He was a Swedish immigrant, and he worked with the industrial workers of the world, mostly in the West. And so he was framed on a murder charge in Salt Lake City, and he was executed by the state of Utah on November 19, 1915. An hour or so before his execution, he handed a piece of paper through the bars to the guard. And, 
And he said, this is the last thing I'm ever going to write. And it was his last will. It's survived for a hundred years, being passed around, people learned it. I learned it as a poem, and so when I did this album, I thought, well, this is such a good little poem. A hundred years is long enough for this not to have a melody, so I, I put this melody to it. much what do you call it last will of testament or joe joe hill's last will there is a rhyme and reason to how you do this i'm sure but with 40 albums you have songs coming through you at such a pace as a matter of fact when you were in eau claire performing one time at the uu there during intermission you wrote a song and played it in the second half mm -hmm. do you do that off you and joe hill i guess just that's the way it works you have ideas that come to you all the time. I have a, a new uh, two-day-old granddaughter, and my son and his wife were totally not going to tell us what the name was before the birth. And my wife is a children's book author, and she is turning in the manuscript for, or, you know, not the manuscript, the F and Gs, the folded and gathered, the last thing before they are actually printed. And she has the name of all the grandchildren. She said, do you know what Peter and Lillian's Little girl is going to be named. No. So it was, you know. It feels a lot like Christmas. The waiting is the same. A little girl is coming. I don't even know her name. I know what's supposed to happen. 
even know the date I know there's nothing I can do But go and sit and wait Soon there'll be a call A picture on the phone Flowers, cards, and casseroles Awaiting them at home Breathless, speechless prayer Pride, relief, and gratitude That she is finally here Here across this great divide Closest to me and you To the other side Ever reaping, ever sowing you are coming, I am going Across this great divide There's a great old Jewish story about uh, that explains to me the great connection I have with my grandchildren uh, that old people and babies are the closest to the Creator but they're coming from opposite directions one has just come from the Creator, and one is hopefully heading there. And there's a great story about how the angel Gabriel sits, and I've heard this in Muslim folklore as well, before a baby is born, the angel Gabriel sits the baby on his knee and whispers everything the baby needs to know about life. And then it's born, and the baby begins forgetting and so the old people are talking to the babies, you know, what do you remember? Here's what you need to know. So this notion of being at opposite ends of this great divide from my new little granddaughter. There's more to the song that I'm perfectly capable of forgetting. I know you have to leave shortly, John. You've got so many things going on. How did you actually become Quaker? You grew up Catholic as I, I did. did. I did. When I moved south... Catholics were as rare in the southern Appalachians as Quakers were. And it was the first time, I mean, you know, growing up in a place like Wisconsin, everybody that you know is either Catholic or Lutheran. I dated the only Jewish girl in our town when I was in high school. <laughs> Not Becky, huh? No, no. She was a good Catholic girl. When we had children, my wife, who had also been raised Catholic but endured far more scars from that experience than I did, I said, I really want to bring our children up with some spiritual home. And I know the Catholic Church won't work for you. So we went on what I called a church search. And we visited different denominations. And I had been hired by this time many times by FGC. And I felt a kinship with the Quakers. But I didn't know enough about them. And so we went to the Quaker meeting in Charlottesville, which I still consider my spiritual home. One Sunday, and the appointed hour came, and there was no clergy there. And no one seemed to be concerned. <laughs> and I thought, was well, this like, you know, you grant an assistant professor so much time to be laden? If you're a professor, you get more time than that. And about 15 minutes in, I remembered, oh, right, this is silent meeting. And about another 15 minutes in, I thought, this is wonderful. This feels like something that could work. So I started going on a regular basis, and eventually I thought, okay, well, this is it. And I petitioned for membership in the Charlottesville meeting, and 
Luckily, they gave it to me. It's a very old and deep meeting, and they have, it's a small house, so they have two meetings, and the early meeting on the first day was almost always completely silent, and I loved that. The later meeting was a little bit more of a popcorn meeting. Too much talking. Yeah. Well, do you want to share one more song before you have to... Any requests? I can go lots of different ways. Well, let me just mention, do you get many opportunities to play Follow the Light? I don't. I wrote this uh, after 9-11. I was at a festival in Kansas. And because all the planes were canceled, I had driven from Charlotte to Winfield, Kansas, a place that Jan knows. And, um, and like everybody, I was watching the, the coverage on television. And there was a, I got home from the first night of the festival, Friday night, Something happened on the news or whatever, on television. And I turned it on as the credits were rolling. And there was a circle of candles on a New York City street corner with all the signs. You probably remember this. And one of the signs said, follow the light home to me. And I thought, it's one of those dun-dun-dun-dun moments. Seven and eight, sister and I, lost in the woods as lightning filled the sky, ran through the rain. There up ahead, light on the porch, come home like Mama said, follow the light. When you're lonely and lost Out on the ocean You are tumbled and tossed Follow your heart Wherever you may be Follow the light on home to me Out on the sea, waves heave and rise, far from the shoreline, as storm clouds fill the skies, look for a sign, it's a welcoming sight, a beacon that shines to guide you home tonight, follow the light, when you're lonely and lost. Out on the ocean you are tumbled and tossed Follow your heart wherever you may be Follow the light on home to me There's a hole in our skyline There's a hole in our town There's a hole in our hearts The whole world how do we hear? Tell me, how do we see the mercy that shines in you and me? We follow the light when you're lonely and lost. Out on the ocean you 
<laughs> and I, I should, in full disclosure, I got it started, and then my friends Tom Chapin and Michael Mark helped me finish it up. And then we sang it that Saturday night. But I know you have to go, John. I do. Delta I, Airlines will not wait for me in Des Moines. They should. Really, you've been so important to our experience here. You've been important to my life well, from the you. very beginning. This is, the Society of Friends has been very, very important to me, so it was an honor to be asked. It's great to meet another Wisconsinite, even if you're sojourning in oh, yeah, warm weather. And I really just so appreciate it. And I can't believe it's been 32 years since we had you on stage here at FGC. That's ridiculous. And so well, I'm Well, there's sure. a lot of good musicians that people want to hear. Yeah. But next year in Virginia, chemistry. though, you know. Where is it in Virginia? Radford. Oh, yeah. Radford. Yeah. Well, so, well. What, you know, a double hitter. Why not? <laughs> So, well, listen, thank you very much. And thank you, and I hope to connect with you again soon. That'd be great. And thanks, everybody, to John yeah. McCutcheon. Thank here. you all. And again, you can find John McCutcheon at folkmusic.com. His website and a lot of odd, beautiful, intriguing bonus excerpts from this interview that we couldn't fit into the broadcast are on our site, nordenspiritradio.org. Things about musician Dave Matthews, John's grandchildren, bushy-nosed squirrels, and many more tidbits. Listen there, and we'll see you next week for Song of the Soul. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it is called Song of the Soul. Check out all things Song of the Soul on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Send your Songs of the Soul to me, Mark Helpsmeet, via the info on our website, and join us weekly for Song of the Soul.